Okay, welcome everybody to the Interventional Endoscopist podcast. This is our interview series. And on episode number 14, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Rashmi Advani, who um, I came to know about her and, and kind of followed her along on social media and Twitter primarily. And then I uh, was involved, as she is, in uh, the Foundation for Interventional and Therapeutic Endoscopy. And so uh, we, I, I didn't get to meet her formally there, but in Chicago we had a meetup and, and she was there. And so I was like, you know, this, this person I've been following her on Twitter. And so I kind of want to get to interview her and, and see, you know, learn more about her and, and what she likes to do. So as an introduction, this is Dr. Advani. So you just say hi in here. And then, um, we are going to start with basically her background. So she went to a, a medical school at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine followed by residency at the Montefiore Medical Center in New York, and then a fellowship at Stony Brook. Following that, she did her advanced year at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, and currently she is an assistant professor of uh, medicine in the GI division at uh, Mount Sinai, and she is going to be um, leading their endobariatrics program. And what, some of the reasons I was interested in, in, in interviewing uh, Dr. Advani was number one, um, she has a very strong interest in mentorship, uh, whether that be medical students or fellows or residents. Uh, in fact, was a lead author on a publication that um, talks about the interview process, both for program directors as well as uh, fellows. And she is also obviously got a strong interest in endobariatrics, uh, has a really impressive social media following. I think for GI, she's probably in one of the top five or six people who have follows around the world. Um, she has over 6,000 followers on Twitter. And uh, she's a strong, strong um, advocate for women in endoscopy. So welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Dr. Sajdev. It's it's an absolute honor to be on your podcast. Awesome. Thank you. So before I, what I like to do is, you know, just for the audience is to get to know you a little bit. Talk about your, uh, your background, your childhood and your family and, and kind of, you know, just start from there, and, and we'll take it and we'll go. Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for the question. So um, I am originally from New York, uh, born, bred, raised, trained, except with the exception of my most recent year. So I can't really say that uh, completely anymore. Um, but uh, I'm first-generation South Asian. My parents are from India. Um, basically, you know, middle-class working family, worked really hard. Um, and to give me and my two siblings a really good education. So kind of came from that background and um, a very strong uh, connection to my Indian heritage. And, you know, now I'm in a, kind of this melting pot of, you know, exploring other, my other sides of different heritage, uh, different, different heritages through like my friends and my colleagues. That's something that get, gets me very excited, especially living in New York. You kind of have like that, that's, Salad bowl of different cultures and different right. types of foods. So that kind of gives you a little bit of perspective of just generally that, you know, how you see the world and, and how you even like digest information overall, your general openness to things. So I feel like that, that's always been very um, helpful for me, just kind of like navigating my life overall. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of people, and, and I tell my kids is, that as you get older, it's really important to travel so that you see other cultures and you learn other things. But like living in a city like New York or even Chicago or, or the Bay Area, for example, you have so many different cultures there that, you, I mean, not that you shouldn't travel, but you, the world comes to you there where you get to meet so many different people. So that, that always, it's great to form things. And so, so 
well, what made you uh, decide at, in your college years, I guess, that you wanted to pursue medicine and specifically uh, gastroenterology? Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a question I get a lot as I feel like, you know, when she has trainees, when they're kind of navigating through the jungle of different medical specialties and medicine in general, I feel like there are a lot of blunt branching a person can go through. So I personally, I must have probably um, thought about medicine maybe about a little bit later than my counterparts. I, I thought about it kind of in college years, um, but from a very early stage, I knew that I had a proclivity to like for critically to critically think about things in a different way. And I felt like I liked a greater autonomy. And then the, the, Sorry about that. I have is there, a daughter. Is there interference? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, there there are a few prongs to me initially going into medicine. So one of them is understanding, you know, kind of where I would probably have like the biggest impact in my life. Um, and I, I, I feel like from a young age, I've always thought about that. I probably in a very mature way have thought about, you know, my purpose in life and the impact I was I was um, generating just with, you know, my physical existence in the world. And, you know, I always looked for that purpose. But then on the other side, I knew I was a good critical thinker. I was a good problem solver. Um, I also liked a good deal of autonomy in making those and making whatever decisions, whether it was, you know, whether I, whatever, whatever I wanted to eat at that moment, how I wanted to eat it, you know, as a kid. So I feel like that kind of tied into... <laughs> We, I approached life in general. And then um, I had, I, I, you know, a lot of my, um, my mom's friends were kind of, you know, their, their friends were in medicine. So they were saying, you know, maybe you should consider medicine, but then I wasn't a hundred percent sure. So I took a bunch of pre-med classes. And then I, I think through the culmination of that and my volunteer experiences and some of my research in the lab, I came to the conclusion that maybe this was wasn't going to be the best career path for me. Um, and it was kind of against the advice of my, my mom at the time, because I, she, she, I had mentioned to her that I was trying to pursue medicine. And in her mind, because we came from a line of teachers and engineers and lawyers, she was like, you know, why don't you consider maybe one of those fields? And I was like, you know, I'm, so I, I, it's, it's kind of ironic because I'm South Asian and all of us are, you know, in medicine, but then on the contrary, <laughs> on the other side, my, you know, my mom was kind of like in this mindset. So I ended up, I'm, I am the only, at first and only physician in my family. Um, and then in terms of GI in general, so I think I kind of just overshot when I thought about GI, you know, um, originally I think most of us go into GI thinking that we're going to be surgeons and then through awareness and a lot more exposure and seeing what's, what's possible in medicine, we stumble upon GI and then interventional GI. So you find, I guess you find a lot of interventional gastroenterologists, you know, if you ask them what they wanted to do before they thought about surgery. So I, I kind of went into medical school thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon because I thought that was the coolest thing to do at the time. It was something that, you know, kind of resonated well with the way I thought about things. And then and then I must have changed my mind about five times before I even like like actually landed on interventional GI. Um, I I went from thinking about being a neurosurgeon to an interventional cardiologist, and then once I met 
uh, my first mentor in interventional gastroenterology when I was a resident, at that point, I, I asked him because I saw some cases that he was doing and I was like, I want to do what you do. His response to me was become a GI, you know, get into gastroenterology fellowship first. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of like my journey into interventional GI. And then, you know, what, what ended up kind of solidifying the whole um, idea for me was like the way I was thinking about problems and the way the type of thinker I was. So, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily bring this up because I think it brings up a lot of um, bad memories for people who have taken organic chemistry. But <laughs> organic chemistry is just one of those subjects that you either love it or you don't. Right. And, you know, I, I found that that was probably one of my favorite subjects because it was the way I was allowed to think in, in that classroom setting. So, you know, you think about it, you have a problem and then you have different types of reactions and solutions to try to reach that end product. And I felt like that was just the way I thought. Like I was more of a divergent thinker. And then I had like con some convergent thinking skills that, you know, uh, helped me supplement uh, for me to reach certain conclusions. So I felt like that naturally tied into the way I, I thought about interventional gastroenterology. And then not to mention, I mean, there's all this innovation and cool technology and tools come to, come to people like that. So I thought I thought that that was a nice way to tie in my creative side, my thinking side, and then the my my desire to con you know use do something with my hands as I would if I were a surgeon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's really important. You have to like you know the surgical side of it if you you want to be interventional. Obviously, if you don't like technology or if you're not a quote unquote tech nerd. Um, probably won't go very far in interventional endoscopy. I think I, you have to like new innovations and be open to it. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people in a lot of scope specialties who just don't really have a lot of interest in, in technology. And I think we're so technology-based, you know, in interventional than just general GI with, you know, artificial intelligence and things like that, that it's just, uh, you have to accept it, you know, and, if you, and, and I think that's important, you know, and also just a concrete thinking part of it. Oh, I will argue that your Krebs cycle that you learned, loved in uh, biochemistry and organic chemistry probably has no benefit whatsoever to you right now. <laughs> I think I specifically mentioned organic chemistry. I did not mention biochemistry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not very green because then I'm like, I learned the Krebs cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a mentor. So who are, in addition to that mentor, so who are the uh, mentors kind of along your career path who helped you get where you are today? Yeah, um, so I think uh, it, it, it's kind of interesting how I navigated this world, the medicine, because originally thinking I wasn't going to go into medicine, my first mentor, if I were to actually go all the way back, would be um, the person that I worked with in a lab. She was a PhD. Uh, she actually just got her PhD at that time, and we were doing um, basically uh, data, we were, we were acquiring data on, uh, memory impairment in mice, uh, due to methamphetamine overdose. I thought that that was very interesting, um, that, you know, I got this hands-on experience. I thought I was going, gonna, going to be a lab researcher. Um, I thought I was going to be a bench researcher because, you know, she was really the one who kind of, um, helped me start thinking about medicine in that way. And then, um, and then my second, if I, if I were to be completely honest, that my second true mentor was the one I 
I found in residency, and it was one I was really thinking about uh, interventional gastroenterology, not just general gastroenterology, but just going straight into interventional gastroenterology, knowing that I'd have to do the three years in general gastroenterology. And then I feel like what really started par- carving out my journey, the people that started carving out my journey from there, from that point on were the people that I not only uh, had access to at my fellowship program, but also through social media and people that I connected through, you know, during the time when the pandemic hit. I, during that time, I was a first-year fellow. I had, you know, probably been a first-year fellow for eight months at that point when things kind of took a turn. Uh, and we, I really was excited about going to conferences and meeting people and going to lectures and talking to them. But then that was all shut down. So, and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, am I no, I said poof, it all went away like before that first oh. year. You said that. So. I know. So it all, it all went away. So, you know, I, I have to definitely give credit to Dr. Don, Jonathan Buscalia and Dr. Juan Carlos Bacobo. Those are, those are basically my, the two main people who were very encouraging um, during my fellowship years that they really fostered and nurtured my interests and my program leadership. They were incredibly supportive and in, in helping me develop my niche, not just in GI, but interventional GI and also obesity medicine for that matter. Um, and then I think I probably met my lifelong mentors in my interventional fellowship. And I, I'm lucky enough to say I have five of them um, because they're all at Cedar sinai And each one of them have been just incredible in not just shaping me as an endoscopist, but shaping me as like a human being in general and as a clinician. So um, I feel like I have I had to pay an ode to all of them, um, yeah. you know, all the way out in the West Coast three hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, it. I mean, it's an amazing group out there. And, and actually, Juan Carlos and I... Uh, we uh, we took our board certification um, course together, so it's awesome. <laughs> actually, no, we took a we took the test at the same time, our, our re certification, but we actually were an ESD course together in Florida. So I got to hang out with him for a couple hours at the airport. Fantastic guy. We have some mutual friends that here in Phoenix, and so um, he's you know fantastic. And I've met Jonathan a couple times, and he's he's a great guy too. So. Awesome. So, so now that you're you get into interventional, when you entered interventional year, what were some of the goals that you kind of had for yourself when you started, and and how have those kind of evolved to now, three or four months after graduation, you're just starting to get your feet wet in your job. Yeah, absolutely. So, my some of my major goals was a to be the best interventional fellow I could be. Um, and knowing that I was going to go, I'm going, I was going into a, a high, high volume program that was definitely an attractive quality to me initially as an applicant because I was looking for a program where I'd have that complexity, the high volume, and just you know, the cutting edge techniques that were being offered uh, to patients in, in those types of centers. Um, my, in, the, other, the other aspect of my um, interest in the program was and there was a there is a person and now two people that are doing bariatric endoscopy there so that that definitely became a highlighting factor when I was looking for the ideal program so my goal was 
initially and it continued throughout the year, but really being a great endoscopist. So what that meant to me was learning my EUS and ERCP the best way, the web in the best way possible and, and in high volume and with good quality. Um, uh, whether that meant that I was there, um, scope or scoping early, um, or even on the weekends, I, I think, uh, Certain programs are known for also having lots of case weekends. I thought, you know, even though that might generally be a deterrent to some people, I felt like for me that was an attractive quality because I was scoping, you know, day in and day out. I was moving across the country. I, I told myself in my head, I was like, if I'm not busy, something's wrong. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I really liked that approach and I did. And the other aspect was really learning how to a great collaborator with other services so that was a um that was a important goal for me especially learning how to communicate with patients um not you know i think it's a little different when you're a general gastroenterologist and then when you're an interventional endoscopist because the conversations are different in the conflict you're having the comp the, the complications are different you know your outcomes you have to kind of have that open discussion between the between multiple services. So that was important to me. And I felt like that was, uh, the program allowed me to really be autonomous in that way and having those own, my own discussions. So it gave me having that volume, not just the volume, but the clinical exposure, the great mentorship, and then that kind of crosstalk between services that were crucial uh, in order to achieve our therapeutic goal for patients. Yeah, no, I, I think that's 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 great stuff because, um, I mean, the collaboration part is something that, you know, you're not always taught. You have to learn it on your own, and um, you know, especially in an interventional time, it's, you know, you you have tumor boards and meetings about different patients, and I often think it's a little bit easier to collaborate as an interventionalist than as a general GI because I feel like a lot of times, if you if you just take surgeons for example, you know, you're you're asked to do a colonoscopy for a reason, you know, as a general GI, and, and you don't really think it needs to be done, but you might get pushback from surgeons because in their mind, well, I've done colonoscopies. It's not that hard. I can do it. But when you say, I don't need to do this ultrasound, endoscopic ultrasound or this ERCP, from their mind, like, that's a foreign concept because they don't do those. They've never done them. And like, oh, wow, he doesn't think it needs to be done. Maybe he shouldn't do it, you know? And so I think the collaboration part's a lot easier for us, but still has to be learned. Sure. And and the one thing I, I wanted to point out that you said is if there's any people who are interventional fellows listening to this, it's important to go in on the weekends. And I'm not trying to perpetuate this kind of thing about doctors having to work and not have a life. But, you know, during the pandemic year, um, when we, we had two fellows and um, their numbers were down. And the only reason they, they made their numbers is they chose to come in on the weekends, you know, and I think that... Um, you know, we were we were dropping down by thirty to forty percent with the hospital being closed for two or three months. Or not well, not completely closed, but closed to elective procedures for two or three months. Our emergency cases were not as much. People were staying away from the hospitals. So the only way you're gonna make your numbers as an interventionist is to do that. So, you know, if you're if you're going into fourth year, that's your goal, you should want to come in on the weekends. It's gonna you get three or four cases and they probably give you a lot more time than they normally do on the regular weekdays. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was it was really important to jump on as many cases as possible, and like also just because I felt like you know there was a skill that maybe I haven't learned yet doesn't mean that I don't deserve to be in the room. You know, I think 
you you had to also have a little bit of confidence and understanding, first of all, your limitations and a little bit of humility in that sense, but also knowing and having a little bit of confidence in yourself that, you know, you can do this, you're here for a reason, you've earned it, you deserved it. So I think sometimes like, you know, as like a trainee, you kind of get swallowed up in this whole, in a script of, you know, maybe, you know, you not being as old or knowledgeable, but then I think, you know, if you think about it from where you started to where you come, uh, you know, it, it's quite the leap. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're not going to be a GI fellow, let alone an interventional fellow, unless people believe in you along the way and you prove yourself, right? So I think you, you deserve it. When you get that spot, you absolutely, no one's gifted these things. Everybody works hard for them. And and I think that's the imposter syndrome type thing that a lot of us go through. Like, do I really deserve to be here? Am I really good enough? And you, you wouldn't be there if you weren't good enough. So I, I think, you know, that's where you have to have that self-confidence. And, you know, everyone's going to make mistakes and you're going to get the scope taken away, but <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, just as a piece of advice for interventional or perspective or current interventional fellows, it's a scope is not in your hands, and maybe that might be an opportunity for you to learn how to tech. <laughs> so sometimes, like, you know, even as when I was a third year fellow and I was given a little bit more um, autonomy in that sense, I think I was able to kind of convert on the other side and, you know, learn from the tech what the wires were, what the cannulas were. And I think you know, honestly, knowledge is power. I started my interventional fellowship feeling like, you know, maybe I wasn't entirely uh, familiar with all of the tools. So one weekend I spent maybe two hours just going through the closets, writing down every single cannula, every single wire, you know, and then, you know, and then kind of correlate those tools to what people were using them for and for what indication and then kind of like putting that into my own registry, you know, for what I needed. You, you should have been my fellow because, like, honestly, I, that's, uh, I mean, they're, they're sick of me saying, saying it to them. It's like the first month I said, I need you to come in on the weekends and you carry on the weeknights and you need to sit down with the lead tech and you need to learn everything. And, you know, last week I was, I had the opportunity to teach at a fellow's course and we had a live, uh, um, a live session. Thanks. And uh, every fellow I was working with, I, I, you know, we had to give them one to two minutes of feedback and I'd pull them out and I'd say to each one of them, I said, I want you. You're going to get your scope taken away from you a ton of times. And instead of sitting there in the back of the room, chit-chatting with the nurses or looking off at the ceiling or falling asleep because you're not doing anything, I want you to ask the tech if you can be the tech. Because if you don't understand, it, most of your fellows aren't going to go um, to a program like Mount Sinai or, or Northwestern or, or whatever it is. A lot of them are going to go to the quote-unquote outside hospital. And when you get to the outside hospital, you might not have the world's greatest technician. You, you're 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 going to have to train them. If you don't know how to be a tech, you can't teach someone to be a tech. So I, I, I'm a I'm a I love that you said that because I'm a big. Uh, I mean, it's kind of cool to see somebody who was on that side actually say they wanted to do that because that's something I tell everyone to do, and and they all look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> If, if I wasn't doing anything, I'd probably be very annoying asking a bunch of questions. Yeah. <laughs> so if I kept my hands and my mind busy, I think it was better. Glad <laughs> it makes you a better endoscopist. Okay, so I, I want to shift gears. So now that you're at Mount Sinai, you've been um, interested in, and you, I think you've been asked to start the endobariatric program there. Or, or, or are you starting it, or is it? Are you continuing it? I'm starting it. So what are some of the challenges you're facing in the first three to four months that you've been there? And uh, how do you see it with support from surgeons slash resistance from surgeons? Um, 
and, and, and the institutional support. Right. So, I mean, I'll preface this with actually I haven't started yet. So I think okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So you're at that position. So I'll tell you my plan. I mean, this is, I'm no gatekeeping here because I, <laughs> I, I, you know, for me, again, knowledge is power and transparency is key, especially when, you know, when there are major transitions like this happening. But for, from my perspective, when I was going into these conversations with um, prospective jobs, um, my, my primary goal was to assess how willing were they to support this vision that I had. And even if they were willing and they said all the nicest things to me to recruit me, is there actual truth and resource backed into that? Um, and I felt like that ended up allowing me to basically survey several different types of programs across the country, even though I, you know, my ultimate goal would be to land in New York because of family, but I felt like if there were, but there was a better opportunity career-wise um, elsewhere, then I was willing to kind of make that shift. So what I would say is um, this was an idea, you know, that I generated, and then I knew that I was going to go, probably go into a place where there wasn't something there already, um, which meant that I had to come up with some sort of a business plan of how I was going to go about this. So in my mind, I was already thinking about that earlier, probably toward the end of my third year fellowship. So that allowed me to reach out to people who successfully created these types of programs across the country. And I reached out to them individually and asked them what, what were the key components to making something like this successful and launch off the ground successfully and something I can maintain. So, you know, I think one of the major challenges is under, is being able to get the buy-in from not just administrator, but other services, especially the surgical services, because now you're introducing none. I mean, it's not new, but in, in the, in the world of, intervention or surgery or endosurgery, you know, endobariatrics is still kind of new when you compare what's been done in the past. And I think it's, it's going in with the understanding that you're going to need the buy-in from all of these different people, you know, administration where they give you the proper resources. Do you have, you know, a clinical nurse or psychologist or dietitian, you know, everything that's made bariatric surgery practices successful, you're going to need that in your program. So whatever program you decide to develop, like you're going to have to identify those key players that will make or break, you, you know, yeah, exactly. and then, and then, uh, under, and then knowing the, so that's one aspect and then, and then knowing the need. So I knew that in it, especially in Long Island, there was a severe unmet need for a person that was able to offer solutions for those who did not need surgery requirements and those who do not respond to diet and exercise. So that would, I think endobariatrics and obesity medicine was like a nice um, way for me to tap into that market because I knew that there was a large amount of people, large percentage that needed these years, but they, they weren't being seen by the right people or they were too afraid of going into the surgery office or they felt like, you know, they were failures because they couldn't, um, meet their diet and exercise recommendations that were given to them by other providers. So I think those are two components to going to any institution with an idea, with a vision to build something. So then when I think 
I think I kind of approached all of my interactions with that type of mindset, knowing that, okay, there's a need, and then do you have the resources? And then, I, and then on my end, I can tell them what I can provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I can provide is obviously the technical and endoscopic skill. Um, I can be, you know, a collaborator with among services and it kind of like that, another set of input. And then also the fact that I have an ability, and it's something I've identified, and I have an ability to be able to collaborate not just locally, but kind of nationally and internationally. And I feel like using my contacts that I've developed over the years, I felt like that was an asset that I was able to deliver um, as a potential person that would join that, that practice. So I think that in order for, I, I, I usually say this to every person that asks me, but then, you know, understanding their why, why they want to do this, and then understanding all of those other components to it. Um, I do foresee challenges. I think there are going to be pros and cons um, everywhere you go. It just depends on what your negotiables are and what your non-negotiables are. And you kind of have to write, you have to have a little bit of introspection into into what you're able to tolerate and what you're not. Like if you're an inpatient person, then, you know, waiting, waiting, <laughs> waiting two months to launch, launch a program off the ground because you're having like 10 conversations with 10 different services just to convince them that this is a viable option for patients, you know, might not necessarily leave you in the most happy place. Um, so I think a little bit of that, so uh, understanding yourself in that process. But that's my long-winded answer. Yeah, no, 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 it's not. Actually, it's great because it's fantastic information. And I think the other thing is one of the key points that I'll say to anybody looking for a job, whether it's endobariatrics and you're an interventionalist and you want to do just ERCP or and. and I shouldn't say just ERC, but you want to do any of that thing. You have to know if your program's going to support you. You have to know if um, the hospital or institution is going to support. Are the other services, surgery, I mean, are they going to try to do, you know, common bile duct explorations or are they going to let you do clangioscopy? You know, all those type of things, you know, you need to know what you're getting into because if you don't get into the right environment, you're going to be extremely unhappy with your job. And Correct. I mean, it's it's starting any program, but endobariatrics does, I think, personally, I feel like it has some challenges. I know when I got trained on sleeves a few years ago, I tried to take it to one of my hospitals, and uh, I took it to an administrator, and he thought it was a great idea. But then he went and talked to some surgeons and said, we don't really want GI doing this procedure, and uh, it went dead silent. And, you know, three years later, there's still really no traction in that. And it really depends on a lot of politics. It depends on the relationship. But if you have people you're working with who are open, then you can, the sky's the limit for a lot of these things. I think right. the, only, the only question I have about endobariatrics is a lot of people, I, I, I'm just curious to know down the road, sleeves versus Ozempic at all, like where's going to be, is it going to be combination therapy? Is it going to be one versus the other? Are we going to get equal uh, weight loss with better medicines. I mean, it's just interesting. It'll be fun to kind of watch that debate as it goes on in time. So. Yeah, I think I think just to touch upon that a little bit, because I think that this has been a very common topic, especially for the people that might not necessarily believe in the utility of performing endoscopic procedures for weight loss, right? Like when you think about the balloon and the sleeve and the outlet reductions. So, I mean, I will say that there is, Emerging data showing a synergy, actually, between GLPs and endoscopic procedures in that 
say you were to just do these endoscopic procedures, that weight tends to plateau at 12 months and or 24 months, but adding a GLP-1 agonist early on would actually augment that response and help you help you stay there. Now, you could always argue, you know, how long does a patient need to be on GLPs? I think these are discussions for a more yeah. a larger topic. Uh, <laughs> but um, there's definitely data that just got presented at DDW showing that there is synergy between especially GLPs and outlet reductions and GLPs and sleeves. Um, if you look at the latest data from even the Brigham Group or I think um, the Mayo Group, it, Acosta, they're all, they're all doing similar types of studies. And I think um, even if you're looking at GLPs as like a long-term solution, it's not, it's not a, the solution for everyone, right? And not everyone's going to tolerate, not everyone's going to be able to afford them and then be, um, uh, and then, you know, there's a, the cycle of uh, excess weight, right? right. You know, people kind of plug into different parts of the cycle and you kind of want to offer different things at different times or, you know, a combination of things and have a, a, an abundance of tools to help them, not just a few. Yeah, it, it's a multifaceted problem. Like you're right, it's a whole other, it, it's basically a weekend course. All right, <laughs> All right, so that's awesome. So the other thing I wanted to kind of yeah, pick your brain on was um, your you know, your involvement with mentorship. We mentioned it at the beginning uh, how you're really involved in mentorship of fellows, medical students, and residents. So I guess what kind of drives you to do that and, and how did you get involved in it? And um, why, I guess the how, what, why of yeah, I, your involvement in mentorship? <laughs> fair. I, so I think this goes back to, you know, my the constant question I ask myself is what purpose do I have in this life and what, what impact am I making? And um, when, I, when I think about, when I ask myself these questions, I think about how I'm going to pay forward all of this that was given to me, you know, and I, I'm very grateful for where I am because if you were to ask me 10 years ago that if I were, you know, you rush me, you're going to be, you know, leading this program at this center, I would not believe you at all. At all. You know, I, and I, I'm just grateful for even being here. So um, a little bit of that, maybe just wanting to also pay it forward, but also feeling like when I was in that, in that stage of my life, I felt like maybe it was a little bit of me not asking or reaching out or seeking help, but I wanted to be that resource, that easy to access resource for trainees, um, such that, you know, they didn't feel intimidated or shy to reach out someone that they found to be more like a peer versus versus someone that, you know, was much more advanced or, you know, um, successful compared to them at that point. So, I mean, maybe it's a lot of me internalizing this as I was, you know, going through the journey, but I felt like, you know, it was something that I would be able to offer in a very meaningful way. And then through my social media, it, it just happened to be that that ended up being the case because I was on social media and I kind of started on Instagram and I was like, you know, really my my first, my first dive into social media because prior to you could not even find one post of me because I just, I, I wasn't that type of person to be putting stuff out on social media if I felt like it really didn't help someone else. But so when I started on Instagram, it was really more of a, uh, it was more geared to educating people about gastroenterological diseases 
And then through that, I think residents and trainees were reaching out to me saying, hey, you know, you're very inspiring. This is great content. You know, how did you get into gastroenterology? And I mean, we all know gastroenterology is competitive. And I mean, if you look at CVs now, I, I, if I were to compare that to my CV when I applied, there was no way I was getting in, you know, and I think that the competition just keeps getting heavier and heavier. And it, there's a lot of, I think, angst and stress that goes along with that. And I feel like people really want to find a resource, a reliable resource that kind of helps them navigate that. So I felt that through going through that with with uh, the residents and trainees brought me that sense of fulfillment and excitement. And I, I got that passion and I felt, I just felt very motivated um, to do it. So that's- No, I, I think that's important because honestly, mentorship, paying everything forward is, I mean, what's the point of anything that you do in life unless you're, you know, furthering other people with you, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I tell a lot of my fellows, you know, um, that there's always going to be time to scope, right? There's always going to be, there's tons of patients. Somebody always needs something late at night, but you know, if you have a family or if you have kids or if you have students, you know, you, you need to invest time in them because literally you could, one of us could just drop dead tomorrow. And in a week, our jobs, will, somebody will replace us. And, and a week after that, no, there might be, you know, if we're a little bit higher up on the academic world, there might be a tribute to us in one of the journals. Um, and then after that, a year later, nobody remembers. Maybe you get a memorial lecture named after you. I don't know. But the point is, like, nobody remembers who you are, ex except for the people that you impacted. And if you don't impact anybody, well, then no one's going to remember you. And I think the best way to impact as a physician out in, in your career is to teach, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons that Dr. Goss and I started our fellowship. Even though we're in private practice, we started it because we were missing that kind of component of being able to mentor people. And it's been really fun. It's, it's, it's a great time. You know? It makes your life a little easier at times. It makes it harder at other times. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good thing to do. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's important. Um, and um, I, I think the other thing I was laughing a little bit about is that you said, you know, I, I feel like I'm a peer. I started off as a peer too, but 20 years later, I'm now not a peer. I'm <laughs> one of that old crotchety Indian I don't want to talk to. So, um, but yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's there. So I, I guess the other thing too, that it's the, the women in endoscopy, right? So um, we talk about mentorship. Um, I have a daughter um, and she wants to be a physician. And, you know, starting from my, she was born, um, about three months before I started my GI fellowship. And um, so I had uh, female colleagues and, you know, I be, I was that dad. It, I, I have a brother. I don't have any sisters. Um, I just have one female cousin here in the United States and everybody else in my family is just men. And so I grew up in a very male predominant family and uh, I, have, I'm, I have the first girl and the only girl actually. And um, so I was, I became that guy and said, I'm going to be the the one dad who treats all the girls equally and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, I started paying attention and I, I could tell that my female co-fellows and co-residents were not being treated equally. And I, I, I knew they were not, uh, and it wasn't, I mean, again, I hate this term, but it was more or less a microaggression in a lot of ways, you know, because I, I think it gets overused quite a bit, especially in social media, but these are true microaggressions and whether they be by other faculty members or whether they be by uh, nurses or techs or whomever it is, the system, if you will. And, and, and I, I was actually, pretty interested in seeing this recent development over the last three to five years of uh, women such as yourself and then Dr. Siti and Dr. Uh, Siddiqui 
kind of leading that charge. And actually, even Dr. Robin Chutkin was one of the first ones to do that, you know. And um, I, I just, uh, why don't you just comment a little bit about that and how you got involved and where you think, uh, what good things are happening and what could be better. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's an excellent question. I love that you've had that, you know, sense of introspection, um, especially when it came to raising your own daughter and, and showing her that everything is possible in life. And I, I think it does require a little bit of like that, you know, crusading um, as a parent, um, especially in a world where, uh, you know, there are still these um, discrepancies between the way men and women are treated. So, um on that note, uh, the reason why I think I think it kind of was again a culmination of things. I think the way I think about things um, in general is I kind of need multiple prongs of an evidence to kind of come to a conclusion. So the first, originally, I, I didn't think that it was such a big deal when I was applying to GI fellowship. You know, being two of twenty-five in the room that were women, um, I just felt like you know I. <laughs> I, it, it was, you know, New York program, so there are a lot of applicants. But, um, you know, uh, feeling, I, did, I, I think at that point, I didn't feel like there was, like, a lack of mentorship from, like, a same-sex mentor. I think I never really even thought of it that way. But then I think what ended up hitting me a little bit more was talking to patients as a general fellow um, and understanding that sometimes they wouldn't seek care because they couldn't find a female gastroenterologist. And them, you know, kind of ignoring a problem, a very real problem. Um, and some of them, you know, unfortunately, we would find cancers because they would delay colonoscopy, so they couldn't find a female gastroenterologist. So I think that kind of opened my eye a little bit more to the the issue. And then looking with internally within our own program at that time, um, and then also across other programs in New York, despite it being New York, there still wasn't this, like, representation. So I think my my eyes were a little bit more opened after that epi- those episodes and then i felt like after as i got more involved with trainees and especially women trainees who were reaching out to me and saying these things like you know it's so nice to see a woman being represented in gi because everyone amount around me is a guy and not not that it was like a big issue but i think there's a sense of familiarity and then when you look at when you look at your own journey and your own career path and your own trajectory, I think a, a little bit of seeing yourself and someone else who's in a leadership position kind of helps influence you, yeah. to, you know, and also make it make you believe that it can be possible because someone that looks like you and behaves like you and the same gender is there. So, you know, why can't you also get there too? And I think there's a little bit of that. So I, I, started connecting a lot more with female trainees and then realizing, trying to figure out what the barriers were. So I did, I conducted a a survey-based study and initially we did a pilot analysis just kind of locally in the Northeast. And then we kind of took it multi-center and just looking at where, where are we losing, you know, that percentage? Because if you look at kind of the percentage of women overall in medicine. It's not in medical school. So in medical school, there's actually even a slightly larger percentage of women than than men. So there's 50, I think 51, 52, maybe. I think it's reached 53%. But then, then when you look at internal medicine trainees, you're probably looking at like a 40, 45% uh, ratio between men, uh, women to men. 
And then when you then when you get to fellowship, especially GI fellowship, just general GI, I mean, if you talk about the advanced numbers, they're even lower. But you know, the, the percentages are in the in the thirty. And then I think there's actually a study that just recently got published by um, Starkey. He had yeah. annals of gastro. I think last year he published it, but he basically looked at the rate of increase of female trainees at gastroenterology over a course of 10 years from 2009 to 2019. And he only found that there was 3.3% increase. Wow. Yeah. I, that's surprising because I, I feel like it's more, but it, 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 obviously it's not. So. Well, I mean, to be fair, the study ended at 2019. So now we had data between 2019, 2023. 2023. Sure. It's a little different. Then, uh, but then, you know, that, that also is a little eye-opening, right? Like where... Why are we not increasing more women in gastroenterology programs and then thus, you know, uh, feeding them into the pipeline of either subspecialty in GI leadership and things like that? And then, you know, they talk about leaky pipeline and, uh, you know, women who are reaching certain levels of academic advancement tend to either either need more steps to reach specific levels compared to their male counterparts and or they have the you know they they basically kind of go out of the academic role to pursue their types of you know professional medicine and GI. Right. So I think it's a little it's a little bit of all of that, right? Like it's a little bit of understanding what the problem is, how, why the prob why it's there, and then what the solutions are. Um, and what, you know, what we can do to improve it. So I think from my standpoint, I definitely want to be a voice where I'm visible and that's something that can help inspire other, but then also taking action, like reaching levels of like advancement or leadership so I can pull along under with me. Um, especially because I really do feel like there is a dirt woman in that field, in that area too. Yeah, um, I'd love, I I I agree. I mean, you know, we when I look at my applicant pool for six years of running uh, our fellowship, um, I never had more than two, maybe three women applying on any cyclone. That's usually out of thirty-five to fifty-five, depending on the year applicants. Um, and you know, I even one year though, I did rank uh, two women one and two, but they uh, both didn't rank me, so it didn't didn't work out. But, uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I, but with, at this course I was at this, um, there were 52 fellows there. There was a significant, like surprisingly a lot more than what I would have anticipated. I, I, I didn't count, but I believe there was at least 15 to 20 in there. And it was almost like 35 ish percent, which, you know, having gone to other fourth year fellow courses in the past, it's, it's a bunch of Indian guys and one girl sitting in the back by herself or something like that, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, it's it's definitely changed quite a bit. So that, you know, to say to, to just to add on that note, I mean, when you look at um, what they have found is that programs that do have female leadership, um, especially those who are program directors or chairs, um, they tend to have more female fellows. Okay. So I think I think it's just that, like you know, it's increasing that representation, increasing you know that you know reducing the barriers and that pipeline right. to academic advancement, um, and being able to you know put female voices in spaces that you know weren't there before. So hundred percent. I mean, I think I think that 
you know, it, it gets back to what you're saying that somebody sees you as a mentor and you're a program director. Well, you're more likely to attract them to your program than say me, um, you know, sitting out in Arizona with no women in our group, we could be, that could be off-putting to somebody who wants to come to our, you know, and so I, I see that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think, I, mean, I haven't looked at the data, but I believe there's a good number of women program directors now. So I think that's going to definitely uh, shift the skills just a little bit more in favor of equality there. Okay. I, look, I think we've reached about like high 20%, somewhere around there in terms of program directors who are women in GI. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, the closer we get to 50-50, if not, you know, 50-50 or more, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the closer we get to that kind of ideal spot, that's where you're going to start seeing changes. But, I mean, I was just very pleasantly surprised to see that, you know, this fellows course, that there was just so many more uh, women than before and previously than what I've seen in the past. And, and that, that's a good thing, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> and, well, um, I guess before we kind of uh, ended off, I just wanted I, I wanted to give you a minute just to kind of um, share. You kind of touched upon it earlier, but on the social media, you know, um, you you've uh, been doing that since um, your first year fellowship, I think, and you've amassed quite a bit of number of followers. I actually truthfully don't even know what the Instagram. Yeah, I'm I'm a little older. I'm not a history. I'm still on Twitter. I'm not an Instagram. I have an account, but I literally put like pictures of my kids near a beach or something. <laughs> That's what Instagram is really for. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, yourself and guys like Austin with the uh, Medtronic, uh, Austin Chang, you know, what he does on TikTok and Instagram. And, and, you know, to me, that's still a little bit of a foreign concept uh, because I feel like I can share all that stuff on Twitter, but obviously the world's moving away from, or I guess we can call it X now. I don't, I don't know what we're supposed to call it. <laughs> we're moving away from that and more people are doing the TikToks and the, uh, Instagram. So maybe just a, just a few minutes on, on social media and how it's helped your career and why I've been as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this is an incredible question, especially now that, you know, being involved with social media is not stigmatized. You know, you, you, I think if, if I were to think back to when I was just applying to GI, not even, you know, four, four and a half, year, five years ago, um, I don't think anyone was like, oh, here's no, he all make Instagram again. No, but now it's yeah. nice. It's nice. Exactly. It's nice to see that, you know, even on national presentations and major society meetings, you're seeing people putting their Twitter handle. So um, clearly there's a, it, there's a clear move into social media. And when we think about social media and involvement in, in such, you have to think about why you're going into it or why you want to be on those platforms. Is it because... So and that that why is different for everyone, right? Like some people just want to go and uh, you know uh, have professional advancement. They want to connect with peers. They want they want to collaborate with other services, other other people in their own kind of like silos. And that's kind of when you the if you think about that, then the best places to go to would be like LinkedIn or Twitter because you'll find those groups there. But then. When, when you think about other platforms like YouTube and Instagram, I think your, your why needs, it has to have a little bit of a shift to it uh, because it's, it's a different type of audience and you're going to be reaching basically the general public. Mm -hmm. uh, and if your why is to reach the general public and educate them about something you're really passionate about, you want to share maybe your GI nutrition expert 
and you want to share like food recipes, I think those platforms are excellent because with the right kind of um, content that you put out there, I think your reach can be pretty far and wide. But something to consider is that the internet is forever. So everything you put is, you know, even if you take it down, someone probably screenshotted by that that time. So being mindful of what you're putting up there. And I think, I think there's a professional way of approaching social media. And I, if you're going into social media for that purpose, understanding that to stay true to your why and to be consistent with your content. So I think that that ended up benefiting me and understanding that everything that I was putting out there was consistent with my why. Like my why was I wanted to reach these many people and talk to them about why getting their colonoscopy or thinking about getting a important important of you, we, we, we talk about increased rates of colorectal cancer in younger patients and like mm-hmm. that. I think I thought, you know, educating that was that was one of my whys. And then the other other parts of my whys are, well, I do want to connect with my peers and I want to collaborate. And I want to I want to I want to reach other people that are just probably on Twitter, not on Instagram. Right. So on Twitter. And I think you the following is not so much like the number of people following you is not important, but I think the quality of those followers should be something you should seek. So, you know, there, there are many ways to increase your following like in an instant, right? That's not hard to do, but you want people that you want to reach to engage with your content and you. So I think that's just, something I would impart like a a piece of advice I would impart to anybody who wants to go into social media is understanding your why, knowing that the internet is forever (laughs) and understanding that, you know, the impact that you make, you know, really, really should be through the quality of your followers, not the number of your followers. Absolutely. And also the one thing I tell people is be careful of any advice you give on it. Cause I actually did that one time and, it was a disaster. So I gave some advice to somebody. Uh, they started direct messaging me, and it became this kind of unpleasant interaction after a little bit. And so you have to just kind of know what it's for and not kind of overstep what it's intended for. And, you know, the one thing about it, you said it's forever. So everybody we interview, I actually stalk them on all social medias to see if there's anything crazy out there so that, you know, if we bring them into our program, I don't want someone who, you know, did something questionable. Right. I mean, I, everyone makes mistakes, but like something really egregious, I don't want anyone to. Yeah. So we, it's always being checked, is my point. <laughs> so. For sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, Rushmi has been phenomenal. Thank you for spending uh, a late hour in New York with me. I know it's uh, night over there and you probably have more fun things to do than hang out on a computer with me, but um, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, any other words of encouragement for any, uh, fellows, interventional or otherwise, or residents that you want to say before we sign off? Yeah, I, I get, so first of all, thank you again. Um, I know, again, it, it's been, it's been an hour, but you, despite having a busy schedule, you, you've really given me, us the time to talk about these very important topics. Um, uh, one piece of advice, I mean, there's a lot of little pearls, I guess I can think of, but one ma- major piece of advice I would say to fellows is, you know, the end goal is not thing you should always strive to achieve, but it's a journey getting there. 
and understanding and being being actively and mentally and physically and emotionally engaged in, in every piece of that process will help you achieve whatever goal that you're you're ultimately meant to achieve. Like I think I think people get very fixated on the end of what things yeah. look like, but but don't but don't you know appreciate the journey getting there and the people that have helped you get there. Um, and also always to ask for help and ask for advice and use, I mean, I'm probably going to offer your services, but I'm Dr. Such Babe and myself. <laughs> All right, girl, I'm always yeah, happy to help anybody I can. So absolutely. I mean, you basically just channeled your inner Ferris Bueller there. You just said that, uh, you know, have you seen Olivia? I mean, no, I have not. I need to watch Ferris Bueller one because because there is um, a line in there where uh, he's looking at the camera. It's uh, Matthew Broderick, and uh, when he was his late teens, early twenties, before he married uh, uh, the girl from Dirty uh, Sex in the City, uh, the one who played Carrie Bradshaw. Oh, Jen- um, Jennifer Grey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. So he says, you know, life moves by pretty quick, and if you don't stop around and look a little bit, you're gonna miss it. And so, I think. It's the same thing that applies that you got to enjoy, like you're saying, enjoy the journey, uh, pay attention to the journey because once you get there, you're like, well, what happened? He has a word. Well, also, um, one thing that I, I tell people, I mean, uh, just join your societies um, as if you're a GI fellow, uh, really take advantage of all the free resources they have. I mean, there's so many courses and webinars and actual leadership opportunities, things like that. ASGE, ACG, um, ASLD if you're a liver person. So all those things are amazing. And if you are struggling, um, you know, with mental health, please seek um, help. Uh, reach out to any of us on Twitter who are, or Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, if you're looking for any help, because honestly, uh, it's, it's a rough field. Uh, not just GI, but medicine is rough, especially these days. And uh, there's a lot of people struggling out so thank you again. Um, and I look forward to meeting you in person at the next conference, wherever that is. So. Likewise, Dr. Sajde. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye.